So hello, Morgan. Welcome to the Real Magic Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about magic and fairy tales and fairies and Sleeping Beauty. I'm excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this because it's such a fun topic. Yeah. So I like to ask guests when they first come, what was like your favorite magical movie or show growing up that kind of made you believe in magic? always believed in magic but probably my favorite when I was growing up um I'm gonna date myself horribly and also horrify like everyone listening to this right now there was this show that was on for like one season called Mystic Knights of Tirnanog <gasps> I which vaguely is, remember this absolute ridiculousness is what it is it was like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers but with like fairies and irish mythology and nonsense yeah yeah um oh now i'm like yeah. flashing back like i think it's one of those shows where like i saw like an episode and i could never figure out when it aired again because you know television schedules back then were a mess and we didn't have youtube <laughs> well and that there's a reason it was only one season it was, it was not, terrible not terrible show. <laughs> it's so bad but when you're a little kid your yeah. standards are really minimal so was it one of those shows where like for me there are so many of these movies and shows where like I wasn't even sure like they actually existed I'm like did I hallucinate that movie like crawl do you remember the movie crawl yeah like I was sure for years that I had just made up that entire movie because <laughs> it's so weird it's like there was a spider monster and this cool like chakram thing and yeah, so, but what did you like about movies. that show? There's a lot of movies and TV shows, I think, in that, like, time period that, like, you didn't need a plot or logic. It just... Just cool, cool pictures, and there are fairies. Like, Legend was like that for me for a while, because I never saw, like, Legend in, like, the entire movie in one sitting. I just saw parts of Legend. I'm like, okay, there's a cool Tim Curry guy, and then there's a fairy. I don't know how this movie ends, but it was cool. Probably the first movie that I saw that had that feeling of like, wow, this is, this is magic, you know? Oh, yeah. um, I don't know how old I was when I saw it, maybe 13 or 14, but it just, because that movie is also completely ridiculous. makes no sense if you stop and think about any of it. Not a lick. And like, there's a director's cut where they tried to like make it make more sense and it doesn't help at all still awesome and visually it's amazing it's a very visually impactful movie yeah and it's just like Ridley Scott he's a good director but there was so much studio interference in that movie and they were just like they went through disaster after disaster on their filming I'm pretty sure you know who knows if the 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 good folk were unhappy with their depiction they're like we're gonna set your studio on fire because things did not go well for legend (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I, I do think that anything technological that involves them or mentions them tends to have just weird tech stuff that goes on with it. Yep. So today we're talking about Sleeping Beauty and you are, I, I think I can safely say an expert in fairies and folklore. You, I think you said on Twitter that you're finishing your 37th book yes that's amazing I you know people ask me all the time how I I write so much and I honestly don't know how to answer that because it's just it's my job Um, yeah you know it's what I do so but yeah it ends up being a lot and then you look back and you're like when did that happen yeah like for me at work, like it shows on like WordPress, like how many articles I've written is like, wow, I've written 1300 articles. <laughs> oh my God. I don't remember what half of them are about. I'll see, find something like, have we covered this before on our site? And I'll Google it like, oh, I wrote this. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of smart that day. Awesome. But we want to talk about fairies and where their places in pop culture because that's something that you're very attached to correct it is. 
It is. It's actually really hilarious because I never meant to be. <laughs> this is not what, I did not set out to have this focus. Um, I actually, my, my focus of choice would be um, fairies, particularly like in Ireland and with Irish culture, but I'm a huge urban fantasy fan. I have been a huge urban fantasy fan since like seventh grade when I was like, you know, tiny. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And urban fantasy um, has always kind of had some fairies going on, fairies and elves, but it really has seen a surge in popularity Mm -hmm. in the last, you know, decade, decade and a half. And unfortunately, with that surge in popularity has come some really interesting takes on things and, um, you know, things that are getting treated as folklore that really are just the author's creativity, which is awesome. I fully support author's creativity. Um, I write urban fantasy myself now and it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing to do, but there's a huge difference between like a plot point in a book, you know, and something that's actually folklore. But a lot of people don't differentiate that very well. So I sort of have unintentionally ended up like minoring in fairies and urban fantasy and kind of misbusting with a lot of that stuff that we assume is like oh this is just how fairies works like no that was a novel from 1980 or something that became popular and I think that's why like Sleeping Beauty is a really interesting um, movie and story to look at in terms of its history and its place in like the depiction of fairies and pop culture so the movie came out in 1959 and for one thing like what do you feel about Sleeping Beauty just as a movie like because I it's my my favorite classic Disney movies <laughs> I actually saw it in the theater um not obviously in 1959 but they had rerun it in the theater oh yeah when I was younger. um and I have to say especially in the theater it's it's quite an interesting experience um and I, I like the older Disney movie version of it. They definitely expanded a lot to yeah. the story. Um, because, of course, the original story is, is kind of sparse. Yeah. There's not much to it. Um, they added in Maleficent in particular as a real character. And, and of course, the dragon. Um, you know, all of that are things that are really coming from Disney, not from the older. Well... I shouldn't say entirely not from the older version, um, but the the version we see in the Disney movie is largely Disney's, Disney. yeah, conceptualization. Yeah. Um, you know, visually coding her as so clearly evil. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a Disney thing. That was a choice. Yeah, I love this movie because it is so unique in its design. I just think it's such a beautiful film. So much of it was influenced by the art of Mary Blair, who's incredibly influential in Disney in that era. And some of the other animators and designers were the people who did like Fantasia and Night on Bald Mountain. You can see that DNA a lot in this movie. And the thing that I love about this movie is when you think about it, Sleeping Beauty is not the main character of this movie. The protagonist of this movie is Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether they're the ones who we are following and who are kind of our heroes through the movie. And they're my favorites. <laughs> I may love Maleficent too, but like the fairies are sort of the star of this movie. It's the good fairies. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love the art, the design in the original movie. Um, I like that they focused a lot on not primary colors per se, but um, they had a lot more, um, bold direct colors uh, which you don't see with animation anymore no I love that as a kid like there was like there's green red and blue everywhere and like there's you know you got some purples and kind of creepier like yellows and greens from Maleficent but like the way that everything sort of matched the fairies and had that sort of tricolor theme was like for somehow like clicked something with my child brain and I'm like oh there's the red people and there are the blue people and 
that makes Maleficent very visually distinct too, because she doesn't match that color palette. Same goes for like Aurora when she's in her Briar Rose uh, peasant. She's also like in that neutral color palette. So they use color in amazing ways in this movie. Definitely, definitely. And, and of course, there's a pink and blue. <laughs> Something that people subconsciously pick up on, um, you know, even if you're, like you said, as a child, um, you're not aware of like the the color theory going on, or necessarily conscious of the way things are matching or coordinating. But there's that part of your subconscious that recognizes, like, okay, they match that scenery in some sense, so they belong here. Yeah, you know, this is this is coordinated, and oh, she doesn't. So, you know, even like in the birds, you'll see like there's a blue and a red and a green bird. And it just, it works so well, especially for that young mindset. But so, really well done. Yeah. And you, you mentioned how like this is very influenced by Disney, but it's also influenced by Tchaikovsky and his version of the fairy tale and his music, which I just is sort of iconic now. And it's sort of really unique in among, I mean, they did Fantasia, but like the way they use classical music here is really beautiful. Thinking of Fantasia when you were talking about Tchaikovsky. Yeah. yeah. Which Fantasia also has a lot of fairies in it. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And Tchaikovsky, he was, he had a lot of fairy influences too. And I did not mean for that to be a joke about Tchaikovsky since he was <laughs> very um, not straight and very tortured by that fact. But I just realized it as I said it not joking there but um but let's sort of rewind here uh, talk about fairies in general and how they are portrayed in the wider culture because it's such a complex history and you know the so like in Ireland where you're an expert on this so much of the many of the stories of quote-unquote good folk or fairies or the Tuatha Dé Danann those are versions of stories of gods and heroes from pre-christian ireland and so there's so many layers and all these stories about like is it pre-christian myth is it the fae is it all those things is it cultural things so yes give us the entire history of fairies in (laughs) in western culture why not um and you know to be to be fair i don't think um anyone is necessarily an expert in this because there's so much of it yeah and it's so like hard to like even pin down yeah it's it's such a broad topic and um you know part of why i had said previously that my my personal interest focus would be ireland specifically and then the urban fantasy has just kind of been an inescapable thing that happened um is because you you do see such um differences and such regional variations and you know, the beliefs that you'll have, even in, in one part of Ireland, can be very different from other parts. Yeah. And then if you, you broaden that out and include, like, Scotland and, and Wales and England and, you know, that is just wide, keep widening that circle, um, there's definitely similarities where we can say that this is the broad topic we're discussing. But there's also so many differences and so many things that are really particular to specific places. Um, what I like to generally say to start off when we're talking about fairies is um, the word fairy really is kind of a generic catch-all sort of term. Yeah. I realize that a lot of people today, um, darn you pop culture, I almost said darn you Disney, but that seems mean because we're talking yeah. about Disney and I do like a lot of their work. Um, but a lot of people, when you hear fairy, immediately think of sort of that Victorian-esque garden sprite, you know, little... Tinkerbell. Basically, yeah. (laughs) Um, usually female with wings and, you know, tiny. And that usage, that concept really is a fairly modern idea. Um, pretty much if you, if you go back, um... And we have written records of fairies um, back in in the Irish material, at least 1500 years, obviously not called fairies in Ireland. Mm -hmm. There's Irish words for them, but 
um, even if we're just looking at the, the actual word fairy, which goes back to the 13th century, they, it was never used as a specific term for a, a one particular kind of being. It was always this sort of catch-all that kind of meant something that was enchanting or had an enchanting nature or was from the realm of fairy, from this other world that's connected to ours. And so it was applied to this range of beings and it was used interchangeably with like elf, for example, yeah. or goblin. Um, when we're talking about fairies, we're just talking about such a huge amount of folklore, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about like our, like the folklore of human interactions with the other world and what the, and it, that's very much permeable with interactions with divinity. And like you look at Sleeping Beauty, this story is really old. Like the original versions of it go back. I was doing some research here to like 1340. Like they're very old, but that they're also, that's just like the first recorded versions. These are stories that are probably much older. And there's lots of different versions, you know, fast forwarding, the version that a lot of people know was set down by the Grimm brothers in like the early 19th century. And they were doing compilation of Germanic folklore. And they're like, even though this was a French story, they're like, well, it's Germanic enough because it's sort of like Brunhilde, sort of like the Poetic Eda. It's like, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a pass because like, it's such an archetypal story even. And that dealing with the fairies. And the fairies actually aren't a big part of Sleeping Beauty in some of the original versions of it. Yeah, the, the oldest versions that we have in writing, I should say. We're such a weird society because we, we date everything based on what we have in writing. And like you said, it doesn't actually tell us how old yeah. something is. Because usually it was an oral story, but way before that. Um, but the oldest full version that we have... Um, is from, I believe it's 1634. And that does not include fairies, if I'm remembering this correctly. Um, and that's the um, Sun, Moon, and Talia yeah. version, which is the, she gets the flax. Yeah, it's, it's flax rather than, the, and basically like they just talk to the astrologers. They're like, oh, she's got a bad natal chart. She's going to get some <laughs> flax in her finger and then she's going to sleep for a long time so I don't know what you know she had something going on but yeah so that's one person astrologers back then the same way many people listen to them today so (laughs) um then like we get the French versions there's a famous version by Charles Perrault I'm going to pronounce that wrong and the most well-known version yeah and there's an and but we could let's talk about how fucked up the original versions are because in most of them she doesn't get woken up with a kiss she gets raped while she's asleep and has like two children with the prince who just thinks this is fine he's already married too yeah it's not like if we're gonna if we're gonna go there let's just we'll full-on go there yeah Yeah, he's got another wife who at some point like once she's awake she's like oh i'd like to eat those children please oh yeah she doesn't take the infidelity and the the children particularly well um very like greek yeah shades of greek stories right there um yeah in the in the um the oldest the oldest french version uh the sun moon and talia yeah she's unconscious and the king stumbles upon her um has his way with her unconscious body which is super creepy and then she yep she has the twins and one of the twins um, is sucking on her fingers and mm. sucks out a little bit of flax. And, and that's when she wakes up. <laughs> it's like, it's what is of, going on? Yeah, it's sort of like that, like the accidental undoing of the curse rather than like true love's kiss, you know, breaking the curse. It's very much, it, it's much like the original version of like Snow White where she doesn't like get woken up by a kiss. She gets woken up because like they drop her coffin and she like coughs up. A bit of the poison apple. apple. <laughs> so she gets like Heimlicked out of that curse. So a lot of these fairy tales, not as romantic 
as Hollywood would say. Yeah. Yeah, no, and then, you know, when she wakes up, finds her two children who are clearly hers, uh, and then the king decides to, you know, swing by again, one assumes like a year later, and finds her and these babies, and apparently they continue to have a relationship, which is super weird to me, but... <laughs> oh, boy. And Yeah, and then the queen gets all jealous because... Yeah, it's screwed up. Like, you know, usually like sometimes in like the Disneyfication of things, you're like, oh, it's kind of, why did Disney have to, you know, sand off the rough edges of this? Like the Little Mermaid is like, you know, inherently very sad, tragic, and they made it all cheerful. But you know what? I'm going to go like, I kind of like the Disney version of this a bit more than like the rape and you know, weirdness of the original versions here. I'm going to go on the record saying I prefer the Disney version just for the way it treats women. The oldest version is pretty brutal. Uh, and I think it's the, the 1690s Tralt version is the one where he finds her and wakes her up. That's a little more romantic. And that, this one does have fairies in it um, and wakes her up and they get married, but he hides it from his mother because she's part ogre Mm -hmm. and so then they have the two children but his mother eventually convinces him to bring the wife and the children and then it's like well i think i'm gonna eat them you know as you do to your grandchildren just go ahead and and eat them so like because you know so let's talk about the the way the fairies are portrayed in the original version and this one because i mean like the the bones are the same it's like there are good fairies and bad fairies and you know or they're not so much a bad fairy but a fairy who gets insulted don't insult the fairies is like the (laughs) big uh, (laughs) number one rule don't offend the fairies yeah Um, yeah in the um like i said the, the oldest oldest version there are no fairies that's the the bad astrology version we'll call it um but then the next one there are fairies um and the way that version goes um the daughter's born there's always some build up where the king and queen couldn't have children and they were very sad and despairing and then miraculously they had this baby yeah it's always how it goes yeah um and so to celebrate they send out Um, messengers to invite all the fairies they can find in the land which happens to be seven and they invite them and they have these specially made um gold plates and forks and so they just go all out oh yeah because they want yeah yeah, as you do um because they want the fairies to bless the baby um and give her like uh good fortune and gifts but they didn't realize that there was an eighth fairy who, um, in a lot of the versions, she's like living in a tower and hasn't been seen in like 50 years. And everyone has kind of assumed that she's dead. Um, like so all of the, us right now in quarantine. Right. A lot of quarantine people sympathizing with this out there. Um, so then the day of the big event happens and everyone shows up and you know the baby's christened, yada, yada. And then they, they go for this big reception and, and the seven fairies are sitting down to these, you know, gorgeous plates and cups and, and cutlery. And suddenly the eighth fairy comes in that everyone thought, you know, wasn't around anymore. And of course the king, kind of in a panic, uh, can't produce the same quality cups and plates and everything that, ever, that the other fairies have, but he, he gives her the best he can. Um, china and crystal or whatever but she's still convinced she's being intentionally insulted yeah Um, she feels like they didn't invite her on purpose and now she doesn't get you know plates and things that are as nice as everyone else got so she kind of decides that she's going to get her revenge as fairies do by cursing the baby instead of blessing her and one in a lot of the versions of the story, one of the other seven fairies hears her kind of muttering to herself that she's going to do this. And so when a time comes for the fairies to go up and, you know, give their gifts, this one fairy hangs back 
and kind of like hides. And so the first six go through there, you know, she'll be beautiful, she'll be graceful, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And the first, like, um, she's going to die. Right, right. And then the, the one who had been forgotten, it, you know, steps up and is just like, and I bless her with a short life <laughs> that, you know, when she's 16, she'll prick her finger on a spindle and she'll die. And that's when the last fairy pops out and it's like, no, you know, my magic is not strong enough to completely reverse this curse, but I can mitigate it. So instead of dying, she's going to fall into an enchanted sleep for a hundred years and so on. Yeah. Um, and, and usually in that version, then uh, when she pricks her finger, that fairy returns and puts the everyone in the castle, including like the animals, to sleep. Yeah, because it's just really awkward to like for her to wake up a hundred years later and everyone is dead. So, left her. Yeah. Well, we see how well that worked out in the first version of the yeah. story. Yeah. No, I think it's, and then the that version, you know, there's the the forest of like thorns around the, and then hundred years later, prince comes is like, hey. Hey there, and wakes her up, and and then you know they, in the, the French version, the sort of middle version, um, they get married and have the children and have the issue with his mother being evil, tired of murder, just super awkward. Um, and then in the grim version, they just get married and happy. Yeah, so the the grim version, like they did include it in their story because we do have stories of like an older folk folklore of like enchanted sleep. And like, we have the most famous one for the Germanic culture is Brunhilde. And I'm a, I was a music major and I wrote my thesis on Wagner. So that's right up your alley. Then. Yeah. And so like, for those who don't know, like Brunhilde was a Valkyrie, a daughter of Odin and, um, but she sort of, I think she kind of goes against Odin. Um, told her to kill, or not kill, that sounds bad. <laughs> told her to take a certain warrior on the battlefield, which means to kill them. Yeah. To bring him back to Odin, I think is what it was. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to do it. Yeah. And then that guy's son, because I think it's Sigmund that she saves. And he, of course, screws his sister because there's a lot of incest. And, <laughs> and she has a son named Siegfried. And years later, he comes and finds her in this circle of fire and wakes her up. Yada, yada, yada. Then Ragnarok happens, Twilight of the Gods. It's very awkward. <laughs> Um, All Norse mythology stories eventually end with, and then Ragnarok happens. Yeah, so. then, you know, Loja, Loki kind of comes and, oh, whoops, everything's on fire. And like, <laughs> very awkward. But that's sort of baked into like the German myths. And so that's why we see it included in Grimm's fairy tales. So, like, you get this sense that this is like a much older story where there have been so many layers put onto it and like right this time of year where it's spring I'm thinking about like how it could even have been a really old story like an archetypal like a Persephone sort of story where it's a story about seeming death and rebirth so what's your take on that aspect of it like where do you think this story really came from I definitely can see where you're going with it the idea that in most of the stories it's really emphasized that initially they think she's dead and then they realize she's not dead um, she is still alive but she's like unconscious they always say sleeping but you know unconscious is a little more accurate I think yeah. um, and in most of them you know the idea is really she can't be awakened until a very specific time uh in the there are newer versions there's a much stronger emphasis on the whole true love's kiss thing and just whenever that happens that'll do it but in a lot of the older versions it was very specifically a hundred years or you know a, a certain amount of time had to pass um and that that could definitely speak to like a um seasonal cycle 
you know, spring is not going to come early. Yeah, it's not. Um, with climate change, it might now. But <laughs> Maybe yeah. if a groundhog, like, finally doesn't see its shadow. But, like, and so I think... Falling this year, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, we definitely got six extra weeks of winter here. <laughs> um, but we had, a, the our local zoo had a beaver rather than a groundhog to his prediction. <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. So how did the fairies get involved in all of this? Like, and just how did fairies become, go from basically like hidden, in like in the case of Ireland, sort of hidden versions of the Celtic pantheon turned into fairy stories? Like, how did they become such a part of folklore and local stories and just then how do they evolve in pop culture from, you know, the very dangerous, like, Tuatha de Danann to Tinkerbell? <laughs> like, where is our stops along there? And how does Midsummer Night's Dream figure into that? Because I figure it's a big, important chapter in that story. Yeah, I mean, when we look at it, really, every human culture has some concept of beings that are similar to what we would call fairies in English. Yeah. Um, it seems to be a universal constant with humans that we have these, these spirits, these whatever you want to call them, um, that are, are sort of otherworldly. They're not necessarily from this world, but they're connected to it. And we have these interactions and, and um, relationships with them. When it comes to the fairies, um, particularly, uh, we're looking at like um, the word fairy, which I, I kind of slightly mentioned before i promise i will not get on a huge linguistic nerd rant here but um it's important i promise the conversation oh yeah <laughs> yeah um the word and it comes into english in the 13th century from french in the 12th century and they don't know for certain where the french came from but the the leading theory that most linguists favor is that it came from the latin um fata or fatum which is for the fates Mm -hmm. And it was this idea that the, this was an, a term that was used for beings that could influence or affect a person's fate, basically, um, which ties into the grim version of Sleeping Beauty, where we don't see fairies mentioned, but we see what he calls wise women, which seems strikingly similar to the Norse concept of the Norns. Mm -hmm. And uh, most people are, might be familiar with the capital N Norns, the three big ones, yeah. um, Earth, Redonti, and Skuld, who control past, present, and future, not those Norns. Um, there's a whole other grouping of Norns, uh, lowercase n Norns, that, to kind of differentiate them, that are these spirits that can kind of influence um, fate, and that used to be um, connected to a person's um, luck, whether it was good luck or bad luck. So we see these expressions in some of the Norse languages to do with like, um, he had evil Norns affecting mm -hmm. his life sort of stuff for someone who has a lot of bad luck. And so I realized this is a little circular. Oh no, this is cool. <laughs> um, I do think that we still see the fairies in the grim version of Sleeping Beauty. They're just called something different, but the wider concept of fairies, when we look at what the word means, it tells us a lot about how they were understood. These were beings that were thought to be able to affect people's fortune, their luck, their lives, their fate, which is a really powerful thing, um, particularly, you know, in a um, pre-modern world yeah. where, you know, luck, luck was a much bigger deal when you know, literally your life or death could depend on if your cow made it through the winter. Yeah. And it's interesting to like, think of this in terms of like, well, the Greek fates, which are, you know, similar in some ways to the Norns, like there's three of them and maybe they have a common like proto-Indo-European ancestor, but they're associated with spinning your fate. And we have a spinning wheel here. And so you just see those elements come in in different ways in these stories so please go on <laughs> all kind of ties back together um and then you know as you as you see sort of 
carried across the older materials, they were always viewed as beings who could potentially be beneficial, potentially be very dangerous. Um, and some of that sometimes was just depending on what you were dealing with. Some of them are just going to be dangerous no matter what. Some of them are just going to be more inclined to be helpful no matter what. Um, but a lot of times it had to do with how you treated them. You know, kind of like we see in the, the second version of Sleeping Beauty. Would that have happened if that eighth fairy hadn't felt insulted? No, <laughs> clearly yeah. it wouldn't have. You know, she, she wasn't doing it just because she was bored mm -hmm. and decided she would curse princess. You know, she did it because she felt that she had been offended mm -hmm. and that was her way to, you know, get justice as it were. Um, so we see these, these beings who, you know, kind of have this allure to them, but also this danger to them. And a lot of the stories that's sort of how they're treated. And, you know, even if we look at Shakespeare, A Midsummer Night's Dream, like you'd mentioned, you have that allure to them. Um, but they're also just that entire play kind of running around messing with humans. Yeah, like, let's just, just like, because Oberon's just like, I've got this, you know, I just happen to have this thing I'm going to use to fuck with Titania. How about I just screw with these random humans just for funsies? Like, just you know, Lord, what fools these mortals be? Huck <laughs> has that whole uh, soliloquy where he goes off about how he gets his entertainment basically by harassing. Yeah. You know, pulling the souls out from under milkmaids and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, they definitely, that play for the most part is fairly lighthearted and it has a happy ending. Um, as much as any yeah. Shakespeare thing ever does. But, you know, we literally give the poor guy the head of a donkey. Yeah. You know, because it's funnier to make Titania fall in love with him then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, like, even in Midsummer Night's Dream, you see some of these, like, bigger things where Oberon and Titania specifically are more than just fairies. They control, like, the fate of the world because like Titania has this long monologue where she's talking about because she and Oberon are fighting the world is not thriving there are storms and famines and it's like all this because of our discord um and so like they're kind of like are these fairies are these gods is there a difference and really it's yeah well, and, you know, not that I'm, I'm saying Shakespeare necessarily is like a great repository of folklore, but you do see in, in A Midsummer Night's Dream what we find in general in folklore, which is you have these really powerful fairies, which would be Titania and Oberon. And then you also have these sort of not king and queen level fairy in Puck, who um, is still really powerful and can still do quite a lot of things and, and cause a lot of um, issues or benefits yeah but then you also have like the the lower level mm -hmm. um, particularly what we see with Titania's attendants who um you know don't really seem to be much of a threat or a risk to anyone mm -hmm. but are still fairies they're still you know they still have some magic to them so it's like that hierarchy those layers yeah you definitely see that there's like and you see this in in the Disney Sleeping Beauty, it's kind of very clearly implied that Maleficent is a heck of a lot more powerful than Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. She's the only one who can, like, turn into a dragon. Um, you, hope, you really hope that the, the other three didn't have that ability and just chose not to use it. <laughs> Screw you, Prince Philip. Here's, here's we're going to put sparkles on your sword. <laughs> what? Oh, sorry. Um... But sparkly, and then you go earn it yourself. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Maleficent because she is one of my favorite Disney characters of all times. One of the things um, I love to see in like witchy media and fairy media is like kind of I've talked about this is like how sometimes fairies or even witch characters can kind of be deities in disguise. And you see the association of 
goddesses and got more usually more a goddess figure with dragons and serpents a lot in mythology there's all sorts of stories um hypotheses of hypotheses about how all these stories about how sky gods fighting dragons is a reflection of the indo-european invasion and how they it's a mythological version of how these two cultures clashed and a sky god took over from a more female focused religion and that's shown as him defeating a dragon or a serpent or a typhon or that sort of thing and so when i see maleficent this woman who is powerful and dangerous because she's powerful turn into a dragon that reminds me of that it also reminds me of the ring of the nibelungen and the brunhilde story where there's a dragon there too that used to be a giant in that case and he got turned into a dragon because he had the ring and so you see all this dragons and rings and transformations and heroes having to fight dragons it's such a big part of mythology and then you just see it in this disney movie and you just think oh a cool dragon (laughs) that was a long rambling thing sorry no no, i think that those are all good points Um, you know Looking at the older movie, the, 50, the uh, 1959 movie, uh, it was such a powerful moment in the movie when she turns into the dragon. It's so cool. And that was when you're kind of like this little kid going, "Oh no!" <laughs> like, and like, I was, I was the weird little kid, and I'm sure there are other little kids like this because Maleficent's so cool. I'm like, I was rooting for the dragon. <laughs> the dragon's so much cooler than the dumb prince. <laughs> had a little bit of sympathy for her, or at least I did. Yeah. Um, you know, and then obviously the, the modern movie, much more so, but even in the, the older story with the fairy, um, the seven fairies and the eighth one, her motivation is pretty clear. Like, it, it never, in the original, I don't think was intended to, but certainly from my reading, never felt like she was evil. She wasn't, you know, being vicious for no reason. I think we lose a little of that context without the understanding of what a huge insult it would be to not have invited her. Yeah. And invited everyone else. Because um, the that sort of a thing with the, the child of a king and a queen, it wasn't like a, you know, restricted guest list, just friends and family kind of deal. Yeah. You know, it was like everyone who was anyone would yeah. be included. And obviously he didn't forget her on purpose in the story, but you could kind of understand from the, the social dynamic of it uh, why she took it as badly as she did. And then to not get served on the same quality mm-hmm. you know, plates, clearly you can kind of get where she was like, well, you know, you guys are just mean and yeah. you're, you're obviously trying to insult me. So I always had a little sympathy for her. Oh yeah. And you know, in the 1959 version, you know, I mean, you can kind of understand like, well, we're not going to invite the scary fairy with the horns who lives in the castle full of ogres. Maybe we don't want her at the big, but then again, that's the person you don't want to piss off guys. <laughs> like, Come on, King Stefan is not the brightest crayon in the box. Um. Had they invited her, um, she would have been obligated to give a good gift. And even yeah. if she tried to be a little sneaky with it, it definitely wouldn't have been your kid's going to die when she turned 16. Yeah. And like that's, you know, that's the thing about the Sleeping Beauty story that's instructive for our real world magical work with the Fae is <laughs> don't insult them. <laughs> don't you know if you invite fairies into your magical practice be careful <laughs> don't start serve them on the nice use the nice uh, nice cutlery and stuff also just that awareness of like that's my cat <laughs> i'm sorry just, <laughs> sorry i'm just watching behind you as this cat is like i'm about to be a cat i'm gonna jump on the computer screen 17 and a half pounds of cat who is Aww. not physically capable 
of doing that jump that she just tried to do. And now she's going to pretend like she didn't try to do it. She's sitting behind me, like cleaning her. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was what I meant to do, mom. Um, Very dramatic as we're talking about this subject. Um, I think cats and fairies are definitely natural allies. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed, you know, personal observation. I think half of the cats are definitely like team fairy. Mm-hmm. And the other half are probably like constantly harassed by fairies. Yeah. So um, get a little bit of both. I have a corgi and my favorite like oh. bit of fairy folklore is that like corgis were like the steeds of Welsh fairy warriors. <laughs> I just that's my favorite image of like a, a Welsh fairy like riding a corgi into battle. Make sure that's why it has the mark on their back. Oh, yeah. So you brought up the Maleficent movie, the one with Angelina Jolie, which I think came out like 2014. Now there's a sequel. Those movies, um, I thought, looking at the original Sleeping Beauty as like this rape story, the original, the, the Maleficent movie, the first one is really interesting in the way it kind of reframes this as basically Maleficent this King Stefan is an asshole and like drugs her and cuts off her wings while she's asleep. It's like a date rape metaphor. I've always thought that they did, the writers did that on purpose. Yeah. To have that subtle nod or not so subtle nod to the oldest version of the story. Because to me that, that is so much the, you know, the old, old version where, she has the flax in her finger and she's unconscious. Um, she has twins. She has two wings. I realize I'm getting like really detailed with this symbolism here, yeah. but um, it it definitely, I think, was something intentional. And I could be wrong. And, you know, you'll share this and all the writers for Disney will show up and be like, absolutely not. We didn't do it on purpose. It was a coincidence. But it's always struck me as being intentional because it's so similar to that original um, using symbolism instead of the actual act, but um, yeah, unconscious wakes up, you know, in this this state yeah. of like what has happened. Yeah, like the, I think that's the most powerful part of that movie. Like, I like the visuals of Maleficent. I some of the stuff is kind of. I don't like that she she doesn't get to turn to the dragon. That it's like her her crow friend even though I really like that character Diaval the the crow um it's this lovely Irish accent um but I yeah that movie's kind of I also like that they kind of go the frozen route and like we're gonna have a different kind of true love here and I like that the prince in both the original and the sequel is just a complete (laughs) non-character like he's so unimportant to the story I actually I really liked the general um, take of that movie Um, I liked that they made her this sort of powerful um, otherworldly figure and even after she gets her wings cut off she's still powerful yeah Um, which is sort of then what causes a lot of the subsequent subsequent plot to happen Mm -hmm. um she doesn't become powerless uh although you know when she gets the wings back spoiler alert um should have said that before i just said (laughs) part before that but spoiler when she gets the wings back um you know she becomes kind of more powerful which i guess ties into what we were saying before about fairies and gods and fine lines and and like in like the second um movie and i have a post up on Mary Sue from a few months ago that I wrote like the plot of Maleficent 2 is kind of the same plot as Frozen 2 where it's sort of it's all about like um colonialism and the people being the fairy the fairies in this case are like metaphorical for indigenous people but also like Maleficent is sort of revealed to be basically like a dark fae goddess phoenix thing and she does get to sort of turn into something at the end of that movie it's kind of weird but like yeah she's a phoenix sort of and she gets to come back but it is like that does really tie into a lot of like 
very very old goddess narratives about like the goddess being reborn and the goddess as a dragon and that cool stuff so I do like that aspect of those movies and Angelina Jolie is a goddess so works out for me <laughs> I liked in the, the original Maleficent movie that they kind of made the, the three good fairies sort of but um, you know they're they're, they're not horrible characters, but they, Maleficent definitely steals the show. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of get that impression that if she wasn't watching out for Aurora, Aurora might not have had to worry about what happened when she was 16. And again, she, yeah, that sort yeah. of like feels like, okay, that, that feels like maybe an interesting version of like an actual working with, you know, sometimes the Fae are messing with you and sometimes they're keeping you from falling down a hill depending on how they're feeling that day <laughs> yeah. um yeah i mean I, I like i do enjoy those movies um so do you have a favorite fairy in sleeping beauty other like I mean, maleficent is awesome but do you have a favorite of the fairies in sleeping beauty um, i kind of like them all uh, and i realize that they're they're different they have different personalities but I, I liked how they were together, mm-hmm. you know, as a as a cohesive um, group. I, I understand why Disney cut them down from seven to three. Oh yeah, <laughs> like seven dwarves was too many dwarves. Let's do three fairies. Yes, I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, yeah, it'd be hard, I think, to pick a favorite. Do you have a favorite? I, you know. In my life, I aspired to be a Maleficent, but in my heart, I know I'm Meriwether. Like, <laughs> um, I just love her. I just love her little kind of... She's the one who just sort of gets stuff done, even though she's getting bossed around. <laughs> I feel like we have, like, Flora is our... Um, Flora is a Leo, and Fauna's a Cancer, and Meriwether is a Capricorn, in my viewpoint of it. Um, and I just love, you know, the scene where they're, they're getting ready for the birthday. And I mean, I also love Fauna's, you know, like three tisps. Oh, teaspoons. <laughs> like, it's all great. I love this movie. But yeah, I want to go back to the original Maleficent kind of tie into what you were saying at the beginning about the weird way that like urban fantasy has influenced like our folk, our idea of folklore and fairies, because the second Maleficent movies goes into this whole thing about like dark fae and light fae and how there's like they're two different species, and that's something you see a lot in. I'm, I, I'm sure this is probably a maybe a show you like or maybe a show you hate for how bad it does. This mythology is Lost Girl. <laughs> so here's the thing with me and Lost Girl. Yes. Uh, I, I watched like, I think, seven or eight episodes of the show because um, it was constantly, people were constantly recommending it to me. And I, I honestly disliked the main character so much that I hung in for Kenzie for, right. for those seven or eight episodes. But I got to a point with Bo where I just could not watch her anymore. Um, yeah. And I apologize to every single fan of Lost Girl out there that's like throwing stuff at their computer right now. Um, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't do it. It's such a wild show, but like there's so many like the, the ideas of like light fae and dark fae and then like the way they use like the Morrigan. It's such a, such a choice they made there. <laughs> like light fae dark fae thing is definitely something that has um come from urban fantasy uh, i actually did a um, presentation at ohio state university in um, 2019 they had a, a fairy themed conference that was talking about the development of the courts and from the scottish material through urban fantasy and it's so weird to me the way that you know, we have all this folklore um, that kind of tells us very clearly, you know, in certain parts of Scotland, there was this concept that you have the, the Seely fairies who are the good ones for lack of a, you know, better mm-hmm. term, very broad generalization here. 
um, they will still mess you up, but those are the good ones. And then you have the unseely who are kind of the, you know, ones that are more likely to just eat you as soon as mm-hmm. they see you. Um, and that somehow this got taken into urban fantasy in the 80s and then into the 1990s, kind of as is. It was still this very, like, there's there's these good fairies, um, the, the Seely Court, or the, they started to call it the Bright Court then. Um, and these are the helpful ones, the ones who like humans. And then there's the Unseely, who could also be called the Dark Court, who are the bad ones that don't like humans. But then somehow into the 21st century, this really morphed in some strange ways into this much more complicated system. Um, and, you know, there's specific authors that kind of took it in different directions, but it also has kind of turned into this idea that the, the so-called light fairies are actually the bad ones. Yeah. It's all this and, like moral ambiguity and, distrust of authority they're like shield where they're like secretly hydra it's like it's all that sort of that's a great comparison actually yes exactly um and meanwhile the the dark fairies are actually the good ones and those are the ones who are like straightforward and honest i blame changing the lost for a little bit of this too but um it's really changed the dynamic that people um who don't know that the folklore but who know the urban fantasy or sort of the pop culture view, um, particularly people that incorporate this into their spirituality, uh, they they have a completely different understanding and view of this than the traditional folklore or people who are still in cultures that actively have these beliefs, which is, it's strange and fascinating and strange. Like, and like you- you see that sort of in the Maleficent Mistress of Evil, like it's revealed that she is like a dark fae. That's why she has horns and wings, but it's not like they're like evil. They're just taller and have wings. And they're, the whole idea is like, what are the dark fae in this movie? We're not really sure, but they're sort of a metaphor for indigenous people who got colonized, which is again, using the word dark fae for that maybe not great but so awkward (laughs) but that idea of like like you said like the dark fae are actually the good guys and the you know light fae are the evil corporations and bureaucrats and that's a good storytelling but then like you kind of you know it shows like the limitations of looking at fairies that way and also like if you look at fairies and most folklore even as you said, like the Scottish with the Seely and Unseely Court, generally they, on their D&D alignments, like most fairies are going to be chaotic neutral. Like they're not lawful. There are no lawful good fairies, I don't think. Um, there would be the chaotic neutral that leans towards humans are kind of okay and let's mm-hmm. give them a chance. And then the chaotic neutral that leans towards humans are not okay and let's just eat them. Yeah. those are kind of your two we're talking about the two courts that's that's really what the folklore is telling us um and then you know where where that shifts it definitely kind of does a 180 which and there's so many multiple reasons like we definitely don't have time in this podcast to get into but you know social reasons and um anthropological things and things that are going on in particular cultures that kind of cause this shift yeah because um, with, with, with the fairies like we've talked about a lot like so much of fairy folklore probably has a lot to do with pagan and pre-christian ideals and cultures that have lingered into european folklore those were very different from like the christian concept of the world where there's like god and the devil and these were very neutral things. Like the other world was neither good nor bad. It just was. And it was just like the human world. There's all sorts of things there. It's really fascinating to look at what happened with fairies when different areas um, converted, um, to whether it was Catholicism or later Protestantism. Because you have this deeply ingrained folk belief in these beings. And you can't just get rid of that. Not that, you know, the church at different times didn't try, but it doesn't work. You know, people are still going to believe that there's things out in the woods at night 
and that you shouldn't go near that part of the river because there's a water horse that might eat you. You know, people just don't give that up. So watching the ways in different places that they tried to fit fairies into a Christian cosmology is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And they do end up in this gray zone where they're not angels and they're not demons. And in some views, they tend to be viewed more on maybe the angelic scale and in other views more on the demonic scale. But in both cases, there's always these like um, addendums to it. Like, you know, they're, they weren't bad enough for hell. And so they're still here, but they're not exactly good either. You know, or, you know, they're a kind of demon, but they're not like an evil demon. Yeah. You know, they're, they're sort of a middle of the road. They might actually do beneficial things for you because you have all these, these stories in this folklore where sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're dangerous and there's just no easy way to, to sort of fit that into that really strict good and evil worldview. Yeah. And in Sleeping Beauty, we see, because this is like a mass market Disney movie, like in the 50s, like they do try and fit the characters much more into good and evil and Maleficent becomes this, you know, the dark fairy. That's an invention of that story in the Tchaikovsky, because I think she's pretty, um, you know, not nice in that version too. But like, that's as a product of our culture and also like of storytelling because you want to have a villain for your kids movie (laughs) and you want to like use this cool design and give her horns and make her awesome and turn into a dragon definitely um and i think you know in our in our culture in particular we really love clear-cut stories we like good characters that are good and we like bad characters that are bad and we don't always do well with nuance. Yeah. I think that's part of why sometimes it's so hard to read the older versions of the fairy tales because you don't usually have as clear cut um, morality going on. I guess we'll, we'll put it that way mm-hmm. from our perspective anyway. You know, like for me personally, like I, the characters I'm always most attracted to or interested in are the ones that are like morally gray to like go back to Marvel. Like we were talking about, like my favorite Marvel character is Loki. And because he's sort of, he's a little shit and a troublemaker, but he's also like got a lot of pathos. And the same, like recently, like my last episode was about Scarlet Witch and WandaVision. Like she is you know she's literally an agent of chaos magic but she's also you have pathos there and I think those are the most interesting characters and that's why Maleficent like worked I think as a movie because she was this character that was very much a bad character in the original but she was so cool we just wanted to know more about her and then they're like okay we'll make a version where she's the hero but she's still evil but not really so yeah but she's Angelina Jolie so yay favorite superhero is Deadpool yeah yeah and so like that's much more interesting storytelling and so I like to see that how we're kind of leaning into that as a culture and we'll see where the fairies go next and as they continue (laughs) it'll definitely be interesting I think um see where it's going yeah definitely like even um, looking at like Tinkerbell, who's sort of that archetypal, like sprite, you know, pixie fairy. Like she is in Peter Pan, she's not very nice. She's another one of those fairies you don't piss her off. But then as she's become a Disney hero, like she has like eight movies that I've seen a bazillion times because I have a five year old. And she's like become this hero who does like, she's a tinkerer. She's like, it's oh yes, girls, you should like STEM because with Tinkerbell, she does inventions. Now that's that's actually a really fascinating evolution, which probably makes a statement on a larger scale about um, the United States and the fairy pop culture. Uh, because in the, the book, of course, she's a lot more vicious. Yeah. And then in the original Disney movie, she's still pretty vicious. She's just not powerful. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't try yeah. to murder anyone in that version. Well, she does. She tries yeah. to get the Lost yeah. Boys to kill Wendy. She yeah, just, it's true. She can't do it herself. Yeah. Shoot down the Wendy bird. 
Yeah. Um, that's not horrifying as a child. Yeah, she's like, there's so much about that movie. I'm just like, there's definitely parts of that movie that we skip. <laughs> the really racist parts, that's, that's what I'm talking about. There's a lot of parts in that movie that are, yeah, a problem. Oh. Um, besides the Tinkerbell trying to basically have a murder for hire situation with Wendy, which, you know, is concerning. But um, when you look, yeah, at the, the more recent versions um, that have been going on in the 21st century, it's a completely different Tinkerbell. Oh, yeah. You know, she's nice. She's sweet. She's part of this system of fairies that, you know, she's one who creates, but there's others who like, you know, there's garden fairies, there's but, yeah. animal fairies, there's there's fairies whose whole job is to make pixie dust. Yeah. It's a whole thing. I really, it's I've good. seen those movies, movies so many times. The whole fairy economy is what yeah. it is. Yeah. It's capitalism and fairyland, but that would also be another yeah. podcast. Yeah, that's uh-huh. a whole, like, the, the pirate fairy is my favorite one because it's like this fairy's like, why do we have to like work inside the system? And then she gets kicked out, goes to be a pirate, and then she runs into Tom Hiddleston. So bringing back um but that's about i won't take up more of your time but it's been a really cool discussion where can people find you and your work online because you have a cool blog and you have there's also like the fairy propaganda department group on facebook which i really enjoy um yeah there's a whole story about how that got started but yes i i do in fact run the fairy propaganda department one of my callings in life. Um, yeah, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, all under Morgan Daimler. I'm, I'm pretty straightforward that way. Um, Amazon, sadly, is a, a good source for my books. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a new one coming out, I think, soon about Lou. Is yep, that May the next 1st? One awesome. Yep. It feels first. like that's the wrong Sabbath for him, but whatever. <laughs> You're like one early, but fine. <laughs> I'm always up to something so yeah I can't recommend your books enough they're wonderful like thank you um especially for like especially dealing with like the Irish pantheon because that one's confusing it's another one of those things where we have like 10 percent maybe of what we initially had for this culture and we're just trying to piece it together there's actually quite a lot of manuscripts um, that haven't been translated, which fascinates me because you have to really wonder like what what is in them. Um, you know, to close this out with Disney and St. Patrick's Day, I think like Disney owns a bunch of them because like they wanted to have like own the stuff about leprechauns. And so like a bunch of them are like in the Disney vault, right? Nothing past Disney. <laughs> Disney is, is not something I'll ever criticize publicly because I'm pretty sure I would just like disappear, <laughs> never to be seen again. Yeah, I mean, Disney's I'm awesome. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm all in for Disney, but it's just like it's just so fascinating to me that like there is like a there's this whole thing about Disney and like they own a bunch of Irish manuscripts for strange Disney reason. But who knows? I can't wait for whatever Disney Plus show they're gonna make with whatever all this one day and I hope that they should let me write it because that'd be really fun but thank you for joining us to talk a sleeping beauty it was so cool thank you for having me on it was really fun keep talking fairies for hours <laughs>